Welcome to Peacemaking in Paris, presented by Professor Sir Hugh Strawn for UCL Institute of Education. This series marks the centenary of the Peace Conference in 1919, when the United States and Allied powers met in Paris to decide the terms of the peace settlements with the defeated Central Powers. I'm Simon Bendry, Director of UCL Institute of Education's First World War Centenary Battlefield Tours programme. In an earlier podcast series, From Amiens to Armistice, Sir Hugh looked at the sequence of Allied victories from the Battle of Amiens on the 8th of August 1918 to the armistice negotiated by Germany on the 11th of November 1918. In Peacemaking in Paris, he reflects on the peace conference and its legacy. In this podcast, he explores the entry of the United States onto the world stage and the vision of a new world order developed by its president, Woodrow Wilson. As soon as the First World War broke out in August 1914, the United States President, Woodrow Wilson, wrote to each of his ambassadors in the belligerent countries of Europe. He said to them that he, on behalf of the United States, was ready to act as a peace broker at any stage when those belligerent countries felt ready to talk. Wilson's closest advisor, Colonel Edward House, was somewhat surprised because within days of the outbreak of the First World War, Woodrow Wilson's wife had died. House expected the president would take very little active part in international politics for the foreseeable future. To some extent, that fear was fulfilled. It took into 1915 before House set off from the United States to act as a peace broker. He arrived in London in the early spring of 1915, and he travelled between London, Paris and Berlin, basing himself largely in London, in order to try and find a way to resolve this conflict. He could not find a way forward. In 1916, House returned and tried again. And at the end of 1916, Wilson himself launched a peace initiative, asking each of the belligerent countries to let him have their terms so that he could try and see if there was a way in which compromise might be possible. No such compromise was evident. It would be easy to conclude that Woodrow Wilson entered the war in order to bring about the peace settlement. He entered the war for other reasons, very largely by the end to do with American self-interest. But that image of Wilson as the peace broker remained strong through the period of US active participation in the conflict. He wanted the United States to remain, in a sense, outside the conflict. The United States remained an associate rather than a full ally, so that it could find a way forward that would be satisfactory to both sides when it came to ending the war. The result was that when the war did end, at least the war in the West, with the armistice on the 11th of November 1918, the hopes of a great many people in Europe were pinned on Wilson. We can see this particularly in France. French citizens wrote to Wilson to thank him for sending American troops to liberate France from German invasion. But they also thanked him because they really did see in him the hope that this would be a war to end all wars, that he could deliver on that expectation better than anybody else. When he arrived in France at the end of 1918 for the peace discussions, he received a rapturous welcome at Brest where his ship docked and even more enthusiastic responses when he arrived in Paris itself. So what were the ideas that Wilson was bringing to Paris in 1919 
And how justified were the hopes of other countries that the United States really could deliver on an international peace which would be lasting? Wilson, by profession, was an academic. He was professor of politics at Princeton University, and he firmly believed, even while still an academic, that there was no point in studying politics if it didn't lead to political action. His vision of politics as it had developed in the United States was almost entirely an Anglo-American vision. He respected what the British Constitution had given to the United States, the idea of the king or the monarch in Parliament, which is what had been established in the 1689 revolution in Britain. He saw American democracy as a development and an improvement on what Britain had. But he did not immediately see this as something for export to other countries as a basis for a new international order. The shift in American foreign policy, which sees the United States looking outwards rather than inwards, is evident by the end of the 19th century. It's evident in the US war with Spain in 1898, which shows America's increasing interest in the near abroad, in its near abroad, in the Caribbean and in the West Indies. And in particular, as the First World War gets closer, in Latin America, in Mexico, and in the northern states of South America. By 1914-15, Wilson wants to see stability on America's southern border. During the 19th century, the major threat comes above all from Great Britain itself. Canada is home to the loyalist Americans, those who have not joined the rebels in the original War of American Independence. Right up until 1870, there is a recurrent fear that war between Britain and the United States might take place. By the end of the 19th century, that fear is over. Britain had accepted the Monroe Doctrine, the principle of American dominance in the Western Hemisphere, and it had above all accepted the principle that if the United States completed the building of the Panama Canal, a responsibility it took over in 1901, Britain would accept US ownership of the Panama Canal. Strategically, that is enormously important because it means that the United States can quickly redeploy naval power from the Atlantic to the Pacific or the Pacific to the Atlantic. It does not have to go round the Cape of South America on a long, hazardous voyage. Also, the United States can become a major trading power in both oceans. Remember, that before 1914, the United States has emerged as the strongest economic power in the world and it now has a navy to match it. Wilson's rival, particularly during the war, but also before the war, is Teddy Roosevelt, the president who had stood for a much more expansionist foreign policy, a quasi-imperialist foreign policy, using the fleet, using America's economic strength in order to gain a foothold, especially in the Pacific, with the American acquisition of the Philippines. Wilson is more cautious about the threat of the use of military force and more cautious about the idea of an expanding America. That irritates Roosevelt increasingly and provides a sense of difference between the two politically in American public life. When the First World War broke out, the most immediate impact on the United States was that it pulled America out of recession because orders streamed in from the belligerent countries for goods. American businessmen were delighted that America was neutral because it could trade with both sides. But as a consequence, 
also wanted to sustain free trade. Britain imposed a blockade of Germany when the war started, and American trade to much of Europe was inhibited as a result. The consequence was an ongoing argument between Britain and the United States right up until 1917 about belligerent rights to inhibit the carriage of goods at sea and neutral rights to continue to carry goods at sea. It's important not to overstate this. Wilson in particular had this affinity for Britain and British politics, which many Americans shared and which gave Britain at least a head start in the relationship with the United States. The two countries spoke the same language. They had a shared political inheritance. But it did not stop Britain being very concerned about its relationship with the United States. And Sir Edward Grey, the British Foreign Secretary, said, the essence here is to go as far as we can with blockade without at the same time losing the United States' friendship. Broadly speaking, British foreign policy succeeded in that. German foreign policy failed in its attempts to break the blockade. The most visible manifestation of that endeavour to break the blockade was its use of the submarine. Germany realised that the submarine would be an asset to it in stopping British trade with the United States from 1915 onwards, but it's constantly reining back what it does with its submarines because of American protests every time a neutral ship is sunk or American citizens are killed, the famous crisis being the Lusitania in May 1915. In February 1917, Germany went for unrestricted submarine warfare, and that was one precipitant for the United States in its decision to enter the war two months later. The second precipitant was what was known as the Zimmermann Telegram. Germany realized that the United States might enter the war after Germany's declaration of unrestricted U-boat warfare. They therefore looked for an ally on America's frontier and contacted Mexico, asking Mexico whether it would be ready to join Germany if the United States did declare war on Germany, and offering Mexico territory in the United States in return. So what had been, as far as the United States was concerned, a European conflict, has now become, for the United States, a conflict with immediate consequences. They're already concerned about the security of their southern frontier, they're concerned about Mexico and the governance of Mexico. And here is a deliberate attempt by a major European power to make Mexico a weapon against the United States on its own borders. What these two events, the German declaration of unrestricted U-boat warfare and the German decision to send the Zimmermann telegram to Mexico reveal, is that for a country like the United States, as it is in 1917, you cannot remain isolated from world affairs. The United States, by 1917, because of its trading position in relation to Britain and its allies, has become invested in the possibility of those allies winning the war. American industry will be severely hit if the allies lose the war. So to that extent, they are no longer neutral, which is one of the reasons why Germany takes the actions that it does. What it means is that when the United States enters the war in April 1917, in many respects, it does so out of national self-interest. But what then happens is that Wilson couches that national self-interest in terms of big ideas and especially that of democracy. 
Up till now, broadly speaking, what he has imagined is that democracy, as it has evolved in the United States, is a progressive force for the United States only. He would like other countries to be democratic, but he does not see it as part of America's mission to make those countries democratic. Wilson develops these ideas through a succession of major speeches. He's a great orator. He has a wonderful capacity for the redolent phrase. And the most obvious of those pronouncements is his Declaration of the 14 Points in January 1918. These are set out as America's war aims, but of course they're couched in terms not of America's war aims, but of visions for a better world order, which are applicable across the board. The principle of democracy is contained in the idea of national self-determination, perhaps the most famous of the 14 points. The other vision for the future is the creation of a multilateral organization called the League of Nations. And in Wilson's original vision, that would be made up of democratic states only. So here is a man who seems to be turning his back on past ways of doing things and presenting a vision for a future way of doing things, which will guarantee a world without war. It's important to remember, and it becomes very evident when he arrives in Paris in 1919, how his own contact with Europe and with the politics of Europe has been extraordinarily slender. His experience has been as an academic. He's been president of the United States. He was not himself traveling to Europe during the First World War. The person who represented him overseas was Edward House. He was also, of course, represented by his ambassadors, but he was not very good at listening to American ambassadors. He complained at Walter Hines Page, the American ambassador in London, had gone native, that he was too sympathetic to the British. So what he's really failing to grasp is the pressures that the war is generating within Europe for Europeans. What becomes quickly evident in Paris in 1919 is that his vision is more idealistic than couched in realities. Here is a Europe that has been ravaged by four years of conflict in a way that the United States has not been, where there is massive destruction, where there is revolution, where there are borders up for renegotiation. He is dealing with three other leaders, collectively they're called the Big Four, Georges Clemenceau of France, David Lloyd George of Britain, and Vittorio Orlando for Italy. Clemenceau Lloyd George and Orlando realize quickly that Wilson really doesn't understand the complexities or the immediacies of European politics. Each continental European country has an exposed land frontier, more exposed than any frontier in the United States. Europe is confronting revolution, threat of communism, the collapse of four empires, Russia's, Germany's, Austria-Hungary's, and the Ottoman Empire. And some would say that a fifth empire, the British, is looking pretty shaky because there's fighting in Ireland and there's fighting on the northwest frontier of India with Afghanistan. There is still so much fighting in Central and Eastern Europe and into the Middle East that the powers meeting in Paris are confronting continuous crisis. And that cuts across their ability to sustain their attention for what Wilson might want to achieve in the long term. Wilson's in a hurry. He's got to get back to Washington. His focus is on the peace treaty with Germany, but the other countries are as concerned with the peace treaties with the other belligerent powers, with Austria-Hungary, with the Ottoman Empire, and with Bulgaria. They have to firefight their way out of crises, while Wilson is anxious to get the peace treaty with Germany done and dusted. At the end of June 1919, the peace treaty with Germany is signed at Versailles. 
and Wilson promptly returns to the United States. What he now has to do is to get America to ratify this treaty. But there is strong opposition, principally because America is forfeiting in its own understanding some element of its sovereignty by being a member of the League of Nations. Wilson tours the United States indefatigably trying to get support for the peace treaty and for the League of Nations, but he suffers a stroke and his powers are fading. The upshot is that Wilson himself is not able to secure his own long-term vision even within his own country because the United States refuses to ratify the peace agreement on which he has staked so much. And in many respects, the peace agreement itself does not succeed. We now associate the failure of the Versailles Agreement with the coming of the Second World War. It would seem that Wilson's vision, Wilson's ambition, what we might now call Wilsonianism, has failed. And yet, when we look back at this sequence of events, when we look back at it over the course of a century, what we see is something really significant in world affairs. We see the entry of the United States onto the world stage as the principal player for the first time. The United States then withdraws back into comparative isolation in the 1920s and 30s. But in 1941, Franklin Delano Roosevelt will reinvoke the Wilsonian legacy, will propagate the idea of the League of Nations in a revived form as the United Nations, will revive that idea that America's destiny is the world's destiny, will revive the idea too that democracy is a form of government applicable to all countries in the world in due course. And that vision has inspired American presidents right up until President Obama. The question is whether with the bilateralism of Donald Trump, the Wilsonian era has finally, after a century, come to an end. In the next podcast, I shall be looking at Russia, its absence from the Paris Peace Conference, and the implications for the rest of the 20th century. That was Professor Sir Hugh Strawn. You have been listening to Peacemaking in Paris, a Chrome Radio production for UCL Institute of Education. The producer was Katrina Oliphant, with sound design by Chris Sharp.